pursue your purpose, speak your truth, deal with adult bullies, cope with failure, live beyond fear, establish values, set boundaries, move past trauma. These are all the themes in my Amazon bestseller, The Smart Girls Handbook. Tribers get in close. For 15 years, I have been searching for a book that didn't exist. So I am thrilled to share that I decided to write it. The Smart Girls Handbook is available to buy now from wherever you get your books and also in Canada, the United States of America, New Zealand and Australia. Everything we do is a response to something you have asked for and girl, have you been begging me for a book for years? Who is it for you? The reviews are outstanding. The press has been phenomenal and I am overwhelmed by the amazing support it has had already. This isn't my book, but our book. I realised after my talks around the world, women would be queuing for hours just to ask me one question. I didn't want them to just walk away, but to have a tangible source to have forever. And this is it. This is refreshing, never before read content that will inspire, motivate, empower, inform and entertain you. It's full of my personal development tips that have got me living as my most authentic and highest self, literally glowing from within. My most vulnerable moments and hilarious stories that will resonate with you. The Smart Girls Handbook is a celebration of womanhood and the book missing from your library. So grab your copy today, tag me on Instagram at smartgirltribe and I will send you an exclusive gift just to say thank you. Attachment styles are used to describe patterns of attachment in romantic relationships. There are four different types, secure, anxious, disorganized and avoidant. Our style determines how we communicate and connect to someone romantically. Today I'm going to be diving into each one with the attachment style expert Dr. Dana Dorfman, a lecturer and New York City-based psychotherapist. Dr. Dana will share what each attachment style means, how to determine yours, whether an attachment style can change, and we are also going to analyse each one. Hello, Dr. Dana Dorfman. It is wonderful to have you on the Smart Girl Tribe podcast today. Welcome. Good morning, Scarlett. Well, it's morning here in the in the US. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be able to talk about um, anything psychology related. But um, so attachment style is um, something that was created by researchers named Bowlby and Answorth. Um, I know that you don't want the whole history, but it was in, in the 1960s, 1970s. And it's um, basically a theory that's based on the notion that a person's bond with a primary caregiver, like a parent, uh, during infancy and early childhood is highly influential in the way that they connect in future intimate relationships. So essentially the nature of that primary relationship almost creates like an unconscious template um, on which their future close relationships are based. Um, and through the research, which I'm sure that we will talk about more, they observed kind of four patterns or uh, themes or ways of attaching that are um, that are sometimes benchmarks for people to use to understand kind of the ways that they connect, the ways that they relate in very close relationships. You have said that there are four. So what are they each called and what do they mean, please? So the four are, there are, there are four. One is a secure attachment and we can 
talk about that a little bit more. I'll just go through them. And then um, the others are um, what we call, the other three are what we call insecure attachments. Those include anxious preoccupied attachment, a dismissive avoidant attachment, and a fearful avoidant, sometimes called disorganized attachment. So three are in the insecure attachments and one is in secure attachment. I would love to know what do you think of all of the quizzes out there to supposedly determine your attachment style or do you personally believe that only a specialist or therapist can determine your attachment style? It's a, it's a good question and it's hard to say. I haven't taken all of the quizzes that are that are available. I know that there are many. Um, but I think that they can be helpful kind of tools for self-reflection. I Ideally, consulting with a mental health professional can be most helpful because they can offer the objectivity that sometimes we don't have when we're talking about ourselves. But I think that they're always helpful um, for people even to understand kind of what behaviors are reflective of an attachment style. So I think that they can certainly be helpful. And I know that people love quizzes, but, um, but I don't think that they're, um, they're not written in stone, the conclusions that we draw from them. When do attachment styles develop and also how do they develop? It's actually, um, it's a, I think that it's a fascinating process. And as I'm a mom of um, two, and now they're teenagers, but I found it completely fascinating as the mom of, of babies. And, and the, the attachment style actually happens, or so the theory goes, in the first few years of life. So it is in um, infancy and even early toddlerhood, like the first three years, give or take, that um, that it becomes kind of embedded in the psyche or in the unconscious or brain of the baby. Uh, when a, a lot of times, obviously babies have, and this was part of what the theory was based on, we know that babies have physical needs that they need to be changed and they need to be fed and they need sleep and cared for. And that also, uh, human beings need emotional connection, that we are social creatures, we are dependent on other people, and we are completely dependent on those caregivers during those early years. And so a parent can a parent or caregiver can be physically present, but emotionally not necessarily tuned into the baby. And there are different ways that the parent can, reflect to the baby um, kind of their, their, I don't want to say meaning, but almost like their existence. Like when a baby makes a sound and a parent responds in some way, even if it's with a look or a gesture or imitation, we call it mirroring, that, um, that a baby internalizes then like, ah, I have meaning, I am significant, I have, um, they don't necessarily have a sense I am a me, but there is a sense of being responded to. And when a baby smiles, when a baby, you know, coos, 
and a parent can be when a, certainly when a baby cries, if a parent can be or a caregiver can be responsive, attentive, uh, soothing, the baby then internalizes because this is their first experience with um, life outside of the womb. That so, in a way, the caregiver is the representative of human beings in general. That I that I am secure that. The, that people are trustworthy and reliable and can be um, and will be there for me when I need them. And when there are, and certainly all parents, and there should be imperfections in the way that parents attend to their babies emotionally, we can't be responsive all the time as much as every mother and father tries to be perfect. There should be what we call empathic failures, like there should be there should be some um, missteps or misfirings, but for the most part, if a parent is generally responsive and soothing and attentive, then um, the baby internalizes the world is trustworthy. I am secure in this world. I can trust other people, and I can um, and I can trust myself. So it really kind of, it's through this internalization or internalizing that um, the baby gets some foundational messages about human beings. Why is it important to know your attachment style? It's important, well, I'm a big, of course, I guess, as a therapist, but also as a, as a person as well. I think the more aware we can be of who we are what we feel, um, not just who we are, you know, from a, you know, from outside labels or something, but really more kind of what it is that we feel. And the more that we can know what goes on with us internally, what we're feeling, what our body is doing, how we feel moment to moment the better equipped we are to be able to communicate effectively and constructively with other people. So um, when, when our unconscious reptilian sort of more primitive parts of our brain that are deeply emotional, I say it like in the back of our brain are operating, but it hasn't translated in a way to the front of our brain to in a way that we can communicate it, then a lot of times we too become much more we're more like animals than we are humans, you know? So, so if our goal is to effectively communicate with another human being, the more that we know who we are and what we are feeling, the better equipped we are to sort of uh, convey that, express ourselves, express our needs to somebody else. Mm -hmm. And can your attachment style change? Uh, yeah, um, it's a, it's an interesting question. Um, it, yes, an attachment style can change. And a lot of times, um, it, certainly a traumatic experience can change an attachment style that we, there, it is relatively enduring throughout life. However, with work, and with within different relationships, especially, I say, especially a therapeutic relationship, but even with a, a compassionate and understanding and open partner, 
absolutely, people can either work through, alter, modify, amend, maybe even change their attachment style, but it does take work. The first attachment style being the secure, how would you, doctor, describe it? How would someone know that they are that star? What are some of the signs, for instance? So a secure attachment is what I was describing before, like somebody who was securely attached had had the experience as an infant or with it and with an early caregiver that the, the caregiver had been attuned, responsive, predictable, um, reliable, that um, when I cry, and this doesn't necessarily mean like, um, well, I think in, I was going to say overindulged because a lot of times parents are concerned about indulging their children, but at the very early age, like from you know, womb to world and during that initial transition into the world, the more responsive a parent can be, the more they are um, like to a baby's cries. When I, when I cry, I'm soothed and they don't necessarily see the parent as a separate being. They're just kind of, they're, they're kind of clueless as they should be, you know, but they're, um, but their, their experience is that, that they will be listened to, they will be heard, they will be responded to, and therefore they internalize a sense of security and they feel secure within themselves. Um, and so the way that that would translate in adulthood is um, somebody who feels relatively secure. We are, we are all insecure and do have insecurities. So, um, but that we can, we trust other people. We, we can have some kind of healthy boundary with our partner. If we're separate from the partner, we will trust that they will return and that, um, and that their loyalty to us in a way is, is true. They're, so there is, there are healthy boundaries. The person is often able to, kind of like what I had been describing before, that feeling of knowing one's own feelings and being able to convey them constructively, effectively, um, not being responsive without being reactive. And oftentimes people who are securely attached also are resilient kind of through the loss or the disintegration of relationships. So if somebody has endured a breakup, certainly they will, they will mourn that loss and then they will rebound and be able to pursue other relationships. So um, that's the way that it, for the most part, manifests. Um, in adulthood. Perfect. And what is the second one called? So the second one is one of the insecurely attached and is what we call anxious preoccupied. And this is when, um, when I was going to say a patient, when a baby is, when a parent is present but a little bit inconsistent. Sometimes they are responsive, sometimes they're not. They almost get like the baby gets almost mixed messages about um, the world or about relationships. I say the, the world of relationships, I should say. 
And um, so what gets engendered is our feelings that like you can't completely, I'm not entirely secure, which is why we call it insecure in the world. I can't necessarily rely on the people around me that there is some unpredictability. And as a result, this makes the, the person anxious. So in, in light of separation, like, um, you know, when, when, when one is not with, or I'm sort of translating this into adulthood already, because in fact, you know, much of childhood too, I talk a lot about separation, all psychologists do. And like there, there are stages that one learns to tolerate separations at throughout development. So a child who becomes anxious when they're separated from their mother early on is actually indicative of a secure attachment. It sort of, it indicates like, oh, this baby discriminates between people. The baby is securely attached to this primary caregiver or several primary people. And then that's, you know, stranger anxiety and things. That's very appropriate in at certain stages of development. But as one approaches adulthood, certainly, to be separate from somebody with whom you're in an intimate relationship, ideally you can tolerate that separation and not the reason that it's called anxious preoccupied is because sometimes people who are, are anxiously, secure, insecurely, uh, insecurely attached in this way will become sort of obsessive. Like, is this person still loyal to me? Is this person who... Um, still there? How can I be reassured that they still love me? Um, will they leave forever? I'll just talk a little bit more about the adult manifestations. Um, and I think this one rings true for many people. I had just been talking to a patient yesterday about this. Um, she had read a book about attachment or an article. And so she was saying, she said, oh, I think I'm, I'm anxiously preoccupied attachment. And so she's somebody who, in the absence of, you know, when she is separate from her partner, she likes a lot of reassurance that they are still there. She becomes highly anxious when there isn't a lot of contact. She thinks a lot about the person. She wor It's not, not only in a thoughtful, oh, I love her so much kind of way, but in a... Um, in a way, like, I'm afraid that I will disappear kind of in her mind if, if I'm not reassured of my significance to her. Um, so sometimes somebody can be needy or clingy, possessive, jealous, uh, suspicious. Um, and oftentimes people who are, um, who haven't, who are anxiously preoccupied, they um, sometimes have difficulty sort of uh, interpreting the intentions of their partner or of the person with whom they're in a close relationship. They assume the negative all of the time or most of the time. They don't necessarily, we say, assume benevolent intent and assuming malevolent intent. And a lot of times it's the latter for people who are, who have, who are anxiously preoccupied. The second kind of insecure attachment is called dismissive avoidant, which I think is um, oftentimes when parents are, it's, it's similar to the previous, um, the, the previous 
anxious, preoccupied that I just talked about, where a parent could be present physically and periodically and still intermittently emotionally effectively responsive. So, um, but that a lot of times when there is emotional expression or vulnerability, particularly not just like maybe happy emotions are, are quite tolerated, but when a child expresses anxiety or other feelings of vulnerability, sadness, um, a weakness of some sort, oftentimes um, parents, it engenders feelings in parents and parent, we don't, we all have difficulty sort of tolerating our own vulnerabilities. And so sometimes if we have difficulty tolerating our own as an adult, or if a parent does, then when a child expresses it, a parent can be sort of dismissive or even um, uh, minimizing or unresponsive in some way to the child so that the child then learns uh, when I feel this way, I need to, and it's not a conscious process. It happens kind of, it happens unconsciously, but then becomes sort of a patterned or learned behavior is to repress the feeling, repress the feeling, repress the feeling. And then it comes out. We, we know that unfortunately we can't just repress things and sweep it under the rug and hope that it disappears. Although that's what we all wish would happen. So what happens is that the person almost learns to deny their own vulnerabilities, their own sadness, their own dependency. And so when as an adult or as they get older, when they are pursuing intimate relationships, people are often, these are oftentimes people who are very independent, have prided themselves on being independent. In fact, that's what's been reinforced and nurtured. People who think that they are um, so self-sufficient and so independent that they really don't need other people or they like other people and they like, they have many acquaintances, but they keep people at arm's length. Anyone who comes too close or sort of permeates um, or penetrates a certain boundary, they they become anxious. But you know they don't want anyone to come too close. And um, a lot of times, this is attributed to males. Unfortunately, that they say you know males who are commitment phobes or who are who don't um, who don't want to be emotionally close. This the research shows actually that that it this is not an exclusively male in any way, then in fact, males and females um, uh, kind of share this um, style. And um, oftentimes too, people who are dismissive avoidant will prioritize things, work, their, their own passions, things like that over intimate relationships. So they may even convince themselves, well, I don't have time for a relationship. And um, or I, or they feel sort of infringed upon, impinged upon um, by other people that they feel as if they keep a very firm boundary around like their closest, most vulnerable feelings. And so that can make intimacy difficult because part of, it's such an integral part of being very close to someone is kind of exposing those parts of yourself that maybe you don't show to other people or even to yourself or that you feel ashamed of or not good about or insecure about that that's 
So it can be difficult to get too close to somebody if you don't trust that they're going to be able to hold, embrace, contain your vulnerability or you fear your own vulnerability. Every human being has some like, um, I don't want to say be as corny as to say like an inner child, but we all have like, you know, the awkward sixth grader with buck teeth and bushy eyebrows. That's that's my own, uh, you know, who, who, I don't know, that was like clueless and kind of embarrassed or, or had been rejected or ashamed or so, and that that lives within us, that we're still, while we might feel like we, we are far from that, and we certainly have like moved and grown past that, that's still a part of us and lives within us somewhere. And, and we have daily, vul- everyone questions themselves, everyone feels like, do I really know? I mean, I'm, I've been a therapist for 30 years. I eat, breathe, and sleep psychology, clearly, and also can be like you. I'm madly in love with my career, and I have always, I, I just, I'm like insatiably curious about human nature. And about 15 minutes before I got on this podcast, I was thinking, and this is like, the roots of what I studied. So this is not just like new information to me. This is like woven into the fabric of how I see the world. I still was thinking like, "Mm, I hope I know what I'm talking about. Or like, I hope that I could say this in some way that's clear. Like it's part of being, unless I'm a total weirdo, which I am a little weird, but I think it's just part of being human. And so the more that I think that's also part of what at least the mental health crisis in this country is about is sort of like that this, this we say authentic, but we also like part of being authentic is saying like, yeah, I, I like hate myself sometimes, or I sometimes think I'm a loser. I mean, mm-hmm. I hope people don't speak to themselves that way, but, or like, or sometimes I just think like I'm a total fraud. And I don't know anyone who doesn't feel that way. And I see people who are, running country. Mm -hmm. For anyone listening to this and thinking, oh my gosh, this is me. I have gone 20 plus years struggling to be vulnerable, being the expert. What would you advise? What could possibly be a first step? I would say, um, and actually I realized too, because I don't shut up that we didn't even get to the fourth type. There is a fourth type too. The the best thing, I mean, I certainly think that people, um, there are many podcasts and reading about it. I also think that therapy, um, and this is not just a plug for therapy, it's, a, well, it is a plug for therapy, but more that that is a wonderful first opportunity where people can start to experiment with like in a very safe, contained place. I mean, first they will establish a relationship with the therapist, but once they feel understood, they can start to um, expose, disclose, explore. And even that sort of conveys that there's like a conscious hiding of it. I think some of us are so conditioned to keep it hidden, we're not even, it's not as if we're being um, uh, secretive or something. It's really a, um, or dishonest. It's actually just, we don't always know. We haven't even sort of looked in those, in our own closet, so to speak. And so having somebody who can 
not only tolerate the um, the vulnerabilities that and and encourage them to some degree. I, it, so many patients will start to cry and then say to me, you know, oh, I'm sorry for crying or something. And I think like that's 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 why I have so many tissues. Like this is what I'm here. You know, this is crying, crying. You know, this is not a big. I mean, not to minimize it, but it's just that. So. I think therapy can be a wonderful first place. And it is also a place to start to explore your, I say closets, but um, maybe because I like clothing, but it's like your inner, your inner emotional closets to be able to sort of sift through in a safe, contained, secure way and knowing that the person will be able to tolerate it. They're not going to get freaked out. That's not the business we're in, you know, um, mm. And if someone does, they're in the wrong business. But it's sort of like being able to um, go there and stay there and tolerate it then allows someone to be able to start to trust. Like I mm. think that that's, and trust themselves. And what is the fourth attachment style? So the fourth is um, called fearful avoidant or sometimes called disorganized. And in fact, this is, while certainly somebody can always work on or change their uh, attachment style, this one is oftentimes the hardest because it is, um, it can often be the byproduct or the result of having endured trauma um, during early years. And when a parent or caregiver is unavailable, both emotionally and physically or just emotionally and is and can also be um uh, I say abusive which I think is like a, a term that gets thrown around but when the person can't be trusted when the person could when the when the caregiver can injure um the child in some way emotionally or physically uh, like humiliating them shaming them that that then it becomes a very complicated and conflict-ridden kind of um, dilemma or attachment dilemma, not that it is a conscious process for the baby because it's or, or the young child because the person on whom you're most dependent also could be the most hurtful. And so, um, so this creates a, a very deep-seated kind of insecurity and mistrust in the child, which then leads to kind of an innate mistrust of others uh, in any relationship, but certainly either an incapacity to, to or incapability of being in a, a deep intimate relationship, or sometimes even a lot of times we replicate what we have received. So a lot of times, you know, that's why people who have been abused become abusers or um, these, you know, these are people who, who really experience sort of like uh, a real, real, really deep seated insecurity, like fundamental insecurity that the world is not a safe place. And, um, and so this, this leads to sort of an overall kind of mistrust, inability to rely on um, on others. So they, it's that's kind of the. Mm -hmm. I understand. And dating. 
Do you have any advice when it comes to dating and attachment styles? Any red flags? Well, a lot of times too, because of what we're attracted to, like there are oftentimes common cycles that are are common themes, it's common um, like permutations of of people who attach, like oftentimes somebody who is anxiously attached will choose somebody who is more avoidant. And because their their sort of consistent, like the otherwise the person, like if an avoidant person is typically avoids closeness and kind of focuses on something else, they sort of require somebody who's going to be more persistent and, and pursuing, it's like a cat and mouse kind of thing. And so sometimes they can kind of complement each other. And then unfortunately over time, it becomes much more conflict driven because then the, the, the person who is anxiously attached feels more anxious because the, the avoidant person becomes more avoidant and withdraws. And then, you know, and then, and then the, the more persistent the anxious person becomes, the more like sort of in, infringed upon the, the avoidant person feels. So then they withdraw further because they fear that they're going to be, you know, um, something's going to be taken away, you know, some kind of loss mm-hmm. or something. So, so you can see how, how it also like meshes in the, in the initial kind of getting together in some way. Um, but I think that, Obviously, ideally, um, you know, if two securely attached people find each other, there is like a, a, there's just kind of a fundamental trust that exists between them. Um, And I think that the more that there isn't really anything that, I mean, I do think that if there is no rule, obviously. I think the more aware you can be of kind of what your tendency is and what your needs are, and even somebody like I would say for you, Scarlett, just in the little bit that I know of you, is like if you were with somebody who could even say, look, like you're, please take care of yourself. Somebody who who will encourage your vulnerability in a way that is, that feels safe and and maybe you will allow them to take care of you without feeling, without it making you too anxious to do so. So like sometimes understanding kind of where the person's, um, I happen to be very much like that too. And it's not until I'm completely burnt out that then I realize like, oh, like I'm so tired. You know, I, I will, just a few weeks ago, I was, completely broken down, absolutely exhausted, saying to my husband, like, I can't even, I can't even, like, move. And he's like, and basically, I burnt myself out because I just keep going and going. And he had said all along, like, you can take a break, you know, you need Mm -hmm. to go do something or just go for a run. And I would say, no, I can't, I have to keep writing, you know, it's due, I'm on deadline. And so it's helpful to just have somebody who encourages or is tuned into your vulnerabilities and will, and will whatever, tolerate them. Is the aim of the game to become a secure attachment style or to lean in 
live into the attachment style you already have? Um, I think the goal is to be understood and seen by your partner. I mean, by yourself and by your partner. Like I think that I heard on a on a um, podcast one time, which I thought was such a great saying, is sort of like, how does your crazy mesh with my crazy? Like, because we're all kind of crazy. And so um, I think ideally it's understanding and being able to own like, ah, I'm getting triggered right now. Like I'm, I'm becoming anxious because the, almost like I feel like my anxiety, my, my vulnerability is like brewing to the surface, but I don't want to let them out. It doesn't exactly like form in that way, but, um, and being able to, or to realize when you are triggered or when you are anxious to be able to own it and then translate it to the other person and have the other person be able to understand it and meet the need back. Like if somebody does need reassurance, like I know that you're anxiously attached. So if you just text me and say like, just need, need the okay, kind of like we're okay, that they're okay doing that. I understand that this is more about what you need right now and not about what you're extracting from me. Um, mm-hmm. That makes complete sense. And I would love to know what is your favorite quote, Dr. Dana? I work a lot with anxiety. I wrote a book about anxiety and um, we have a lot of anxiety in my house and my apartment, so in my family. And so I always am saying to my kids and to myself, like the anticipation is always worse than the reality. And I think that that's a helpful uh, anxiety diffuser because the nature of anxiety is to anticipate, we all anticipate it's sort of the negativity bias that things are gonna be worse. Oh, I'm gonna screw up. I'm not gonna be able to talk. I'm gonna say something stupid. And if, we know that we, that is our like kind of primal brain trying to protect ourselves, then like, I think that it just kind of neutralizes it or at least objectifies it. So, um, so I must say the anticipation is worse than the reality to my kids and to myself. That's great advice. That's really great advice. And what books or podcasts even would you recommend on this subject? Uh, well, there is a book, which I think is part of why this attachment um, style psychology has become so much so popularized. Uh, it's a book called Attached, and it's by um, Amir Levine and Rachel Heller. It's called Attached, the new science of adult attachment and how it can help you find and keep love. And it is a, it's a very well-written book. It is very, very popular. I, I have many patients who have read it, asked me if I've read it. I've heard it spoken about on many, many a podcast. Um, and so I think that people who find this interesting will, um, will see a lot of, it really breaks down a lot of what I'm talking about very generally in much more specific uh, terms. Um, there's also, um, well, certainly the smart girl podcast, of course, I would suggest that. Um, and I am a, uh, probably a groupie of 10% happier by, uh, Dan Harris. I have listened, re-listened, uh, meditated to 
that podcast, and I feel I am I am one hundred percent certain that he has talked about attachment styles in various ways, um, and he also has really and part of what. I like about him. I mean, he is like a skeptic New Yorker. So I guess I really identify with him and he tries not to make it too woo woo and too corny, but he really sinks his teeth into, um, in, into kind of Buddhist philosophies. And it's so you're nodding. Are you a groupie also? I am. Uh, Yeah. I love, (laughs) love, love that podcast. Um, so those are, that is, I, I listen to many podcasts, but that is my um, tried and true. Is there anything you would like to add, Dr. Dana? Uh, the only thing which I think that I did reference, but I do think is important to reiterate is that we all, I think labels can be very helpful and frameworks and paradigms to understand or conceptualize our inner lives because it that it's it's very amorphous you know even to describe a feeling is a very um hard thing to do and so i think that these frameworks are extremely helpful and important especially because they emphasize sort of the significance of our of our early years and our childhood um experiences on who we are currently especially in relationships Um, But they are not written in stone. So I think that also sometimes we become so attached to these like frameworks that then we, we can limit ourselves even in our understanding of ourselves. Like we are dynamic, complicated beings. And so I would use these, these uh, categories and as helpful frameworks and benchmarks and, um, and maybe even conversation starters, um, or even just like self-exploration, but to as much as you cannot limit yourself in, in their definitions, that's just, you know, they're not written in stone. They are not black and white. We are not black and white. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Dana, for coming on to the podcast. It was a pleasure having you here today. Thank you. This was really fun. And thank you for giving me the chance to talk about what I love. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Smart Girl Tribe podcast. I am your host, Scarlett V. Clark, award-winning founder and CEO of Smart Girl Tribe, the UK's number one female empowerment organization, host of this top-rated podcast, the Smart Girl Tribe podcast, and author. You are my community, my family, so come and follow along for more female empowerment and personal development in our private Facebook group, the Smart Girl Tribe Society, or on Twitter or Instagram at Smart Girl Tribe.